Uh, we're in Genesis, uh, the book of Genesis. We're going to be in chapter 2. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Genesis chapter 2. We're going through the uh, first 12 chapters of Genesis over the summer. So um, if you don't have a Bible, you can look underneath you and take one of those. Just open up to the very f- first couple pages. Take that Bible with you. We want you to keep it. And if you already have one at home, just give it away to somebody else. Uh, we, we buy those so that we can give them away. So we'd love for you to take it and put it in the hands of somebody else that doesn't have one. As I said, we're going through the book of Genesis, and really up until now, we've been looking at creation. So we've talked about uh, the creative order and how things are, and what, what's, what does that look like? And as we looked at Genesis 1, um, we looked at all of creation, and then we zoomed in on uh, day 5, where God, I'm sorry, day 6, where God creates man, and then day 7, where God rests, and we talk about Sabbath. And then last week, we looked at Genesis chapter 2, uh, verses <clears throat> 4 through 14 and talked about the gospel and talked about man being put in the garden, what a, what a good grace it was for him to give that to us. And really, as we're looking at Genesis chapter 2, it's just making some expositional remarks or commentary on Genesis chapter 1. So Genesis chapter 1 is kind of the big picture of how things happen. Genesis chapter 2 zooms in on that last day where, of creation in 6, and he talks about how man was created and how woman was created. And so today, we're going to finish out Genesis chapter 2 and finish out really all of the creative order, and then we'll go into chapter 3 next week. So uh, what I want to do is pray, and then we'll go into Genesis chapter 2, like I said. We'll start at verse 15, uh, start at verse 15, and then we'll go to the end of the chapter today. The primary uh, topic or the main place that we'll be looking at today will be men and then as we look at men, what does it look like for men to be married? And of course, you can't do that without talking about um, wives as well. So we'll do all that <clears throat> today. Uh, I'm going to pray and then we'll jump in at verse 15 in chapter 2. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that your scriptures are God-breathed. And therefore, since they're God-breathed, everything from them is completely trustworthy and true. So I pray that as we look at your word today, as we see and hear things from the scriptures that would um, show us who you are, show us who we are in response to who you are, that you would speak to us through the power of the Spirit. And that as we hear those things, because your word is trustworthy and true, that we would desire and that we would believe and trust you and make the right decisions on wanting to conform our lives to be the kind of men you're calling us to be, the kind of women you're calling us to be, the kind of husbands you want us to be, the kind of wives you want us to be the kind of Christians that you call us all to be, filled with a life of faith. We know that this task is impossible in our own, so we pray for the coming of the Spirit um, to move in our lives and bring about those things. <coughs> God, it's impossible. I mean, I am completely desperate for your Spirit right now. It's, it's impossible for me to preach at all without the Spirit, and so I pray that He would come and move Uh, me aside and all the things that could be possibly wrong that I would say, what I would not say, and that you'd fill me with truth and that you would speak through me um, and use uh, your word right now to change us. Start with me, and I pray that your spirit would come and do all those things uh, to every person in this room. We love you, God, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, As I said, today, as we look at this particular text, primarily we'll be talking about uh, men and looking at men, but we're going to also talk about marriage. So this past week I was driving uh, over to Pickens, South Carolina, over in the Golden Corner uh, uh, in that area. Uh, Oconee County is the, the Golden Corner, but Pickens is near that. I was going to um, where God resides in South Carolina at Camp McCall. That's just a joke. Um, but I, I grew up going to there, and I went there and, and worked there, and then I got to this past week take my son there for the very first time. And so as I was driving there, <clears throat> I was driving through Greenville, and I picked up the radio station, um, it was 
in the morning and they were playing some, or they were talking through some issues and they said that there was a woman in Japan uh, that is wanting to divorce her husband because he does not like the movie Frozen. And so she needs to obviously just let it go. Um, but when we're talking about, I know, yes, yes, it killed. So anyway, my whole point is this. Um, obviously, I, I, I take no issue with the movie Frozen. But it's interesting from Genesis chapter 2 when the first covenant between a couple and God is made. Because marriage is not a contract, it's a covenant. And as we've gone through to where we are, instances like this, and this isn't just happening in, in 2014. Instances like this where something so insignificant, so preference-oriented can literally cause someone to think that this can be legitimate grounds for a divorce, for a separation of what God has brought together. And so it's just interesting to move from Genesis chapter 2 to the place that we are where anything, I mean, it doesn't have to be that, right? It could be anything that we would think are legitimate reasons, so, so insignificant to want to break apart or dissolve a union that God has brought together. Uh, we're going to talk about marriage today. We're going to talk about um, this covenant that man and woman make together and with God as we get in the text. But before we do that, um, and I've kind of hinted at along the lines of, we t- as we talked about marriage, um, I want to read a- in the book of Revelation uh, what I think is the point of God giving us marriage. R- remember, marriage <clears throat> is something that is created. He created us as relational beings, and then as, after he created God, created us as relational beings, he created marriage. He didn't have to create marriage. He could have just let us be relational beings and, and just, you know, have life that way. But instead, he created this institution of marriage and gave it to us as a way to understand each other in in a very deep, kind of unbelievable way. And so as we going into this idea in Genesis chapter 2, I want to go to the very end and help us understand what I think the point of God giving us marriage is. What's, What's the reason? And so in Revelation chapter 19, this is, you know, the final eschaton. This is the, the end times. This is when it's all done, all over. Um, all the things of the end times have, have basically happened. And Christians who have trusted in Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, um, are surrounding him in the heavens. And it says this. I'm in Revelation 19, verse 6. And this particular text, I think, helps us see what is the point of God giving all the way back at the very beginning the institution of marriage. Revelation 19, 6. Then I heard, this is John talking, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. This just means so many voices you can't even imagine. You can't even count. Like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. That's a lot of people because thunder's loud. Crying out. So all believers, they're crying out in the heavens. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. Here it is. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. So the idea that Christ is the husband and all the people that have ever been saved are the church and they're now coming to this marriage. And it says, for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready and it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. That means the church is completely 100% pure. Every Christian is completely and 100% forgiven, righteous and holy. That's us. It's astounding that it's describing us that way. And so... In heaven, there's a picture that's being set of a marriage. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's, the Lamb is Jesus. And there's this great marriage that's going to be happening where Christ is going to be united in some way. I can't, I can't, we can't say with absolute certainty what that's going to be like. Is it exactly like ours? 
Probably not, but it's still called a marriage. And then it says, um, they're, they're grant, granted to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the fine linen. What is that fine linen? It is the righteous deeds of the saints. I just want to take one little side note. This is a theological side note, but I think it's important. A lot of times we hear people say, every act you ever do is just filthy rags before the Lord from Isaiah, which is true. But I don't want to miss this. Um, that's as unbelievers. Those that are believers, those that are Christians, the acts that you do unto the glory of God, the good works that you do are not seen as filthy rags. Never, ever believe that. As a believer, as a believer in Christ, you're a saint. The Lord loves you, and the Lord loves that you do good works. And he loves so much that you do good works. He says that they are righteous deeds of the saints, and we will receive fine linen from it. So don't ever confuse the idea that as a believer, you still perform you know, these filthy rag deeds before God. That was as an unbeliever. But now as a Christian, the righteous deeds that you do for God are called righteous deeds of the saints. And he loves, he loves for his believers to do good works. That's just a side note back to the, actually the marriage talk. So verse nine, it says, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. That's Christians. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. John's saying that, but he said, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brother who holds the testimony of Jesus Christ. Instead, worship God. And so Here's a picture of this great marriage supper of the Lamb that's going to be happening in heaven. So as we back over here to Genesis, and we're going to see the story of the very first marriage, the point of God creating the institution of marriage and giving it to us is so that one day in heaven, we will better, more clearly, more uh, beautifully be able to understand with a greater level of intensity what it means to be the church the bride of Christ, and that unification, that uniting that happens with Jesus one day. So the reason why you have it, the reason why you live day to day with your, with your wife or with your husband, struggling with learning how to forgive, struggling with learning how to be in the same home with them, is because um, as you go through that, you will better, with, with greater intensity, understand what it means to be at the marriage supper of your lamb and really appreciate the good news of the gospel that day. That's why he's given us marriage today, for many other reasons. But I think that's one of the best reasons why he's given to us. There's a savior that has an intense love for his bride and he's willing to die for her. And we will understand that greater because day by day, husbands, we are going to die for our bride. Give away our preferences for the betterment and the sanctification of her. Live to serve and lead her well. And vice versa, same thing with the wives that you would, as you see, we'll see, submit yourself to him, be his helper, come alongside him, uh, be fit for him. Anyway, Let's keep going. So what I want to do then is read verse 15 through 25. Read the text and get a, a, a good base of understanding of everything that's there. And then we'll go through it and we'll speak towards uh, the men and what, what he's pointing them to. And of course, uh, women. So verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you, sh- you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every birds of the heavens, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to all the birds of the heaven, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, man, there was not found a helper fit for him. 
So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he took one of the ribs and closed up the place with and, and took one of the ribs and closed up the place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then he said, Adam said, "This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. So there's the whole text. Um, and what I want to do, as I said, is go kind of verse by verse through it, and we can see uh, five different things that God is going to say towards men and about marriage. So the first one, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. Remember verse, uh, the previous verses in chapter 2, God had created uh, Eden, and then he built a garden in it, and he showed it to him. And out of his great grace, after he shows him all that, and he says, this is what it all is about. Now, in verse 15, he's going to take the man, and he's going to literally put him in the garden. You can see the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden, a great grace of God that he would put him in there to enjoy perfect relationship with him. And he put him in the garden of Eden, and it says to work it and to keep it to work it and to keep it. Here's the first thing that we can see in the text that God's wanting us to, as men, realize. Men, man is made to work. Man is made to work. He has put him in the garden, literally, to work it and keep it. Men, we all kind of experience it, especially as we grow out of adolescence. We, we realize that as we start taking on different jobs and everything, we realize that we are made for accomplishment. We are not made for futility. There's something deeply inside of us. It's very intrinsic that we were made to build things. We were made to make things. We were made to defend things. We want to feel as we do an occupation at the end, after our, we've kind of done our life and we've looked at some of the work that we've done over the course of our life, we want that to matter. We don't want it to just not be important, to be kind of whatever. We want to intrinsically make things, build things, defend things, have things that we're doing. Um, You can see here in the text, uh, in verse 15, as it says, he put the man in the Garden of Eden literally to work it and to keep it. We've talked about this several times, but John Selahammer points out those words, work it and keep it, uh, are Hebrew words. And um, if you take them and just kind of change the way they're pronounced just a little bit, they can also be understood as worship and obey. And so the way as Moses is writing this is wanting us to see that to work and to keep, to do the things that God made us as men to do, to literally work, is an act of worshiping and obeying the commands that he gives us. We are made as men to worship by working. Notice, this is pre-fall. The idea of work is not some kind of judgment given to us. This is before the fall. We're given this beautiful piece of land, man is, given this beautiful piece of land to work it and to keep it and to worship God and to obey. Now, this is in good balance as we talked about with chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, as we looked at Sabbath um, a couple weeks ago, I think it was, as we looked at Sabbath. And now we're hearing um, God also wanting to call men to work. So there's a good balance we have to have. We Sabbath once a week, and then men... We get out that after it and we work. We accomplish things. There's, there's, we don't want to fall on the, the wrong side of working too much and neglecting our family and not Sabbathing, but we also don't want to go on the other side of laziness and not building. We are made. That, it's no coincidence as you look at the Bible that it starts in Genesis with just a garden. And as it gets to the very end in Revelation, it ends with a huge city named Zion. And he's putting men in here to create that and build that to get to it. We are to build. Now, Ray Ortland, 
uh, he's a theologian, pastor in, in, in Tennessee, um, as he was commenting on this text, uh, and I'll get to the other thing in just a second. As he was coming on this text, he said, um, as we're looking at this, verse 15, there's a, there's a swirling question in the heart of every fallen man that swirls around inside of him where the wife can come alongside and be of help for this. We'll get to the, the swirling question of doubt in, in, in the life of the woman in just a second. But in the swirling fallen heart of all man, there's a question that kind of that pushes him and, and moves him and causes him to wonder and causes him to uh, question his ability to do things in self-doubt, which is this. He has this question where he, he hears that and he always wants to and thinks to himself, can I do this? Am I able to do this? I know that I'm built out for this way, but am I able to actually fulfill this part of my mission in life is to be the kind of man that works hard and whatever quote-unquote garden God gives me, my family, my house, my thing. He wants me to build it. He wants me to do a good job of my occupation, love my family well, serve and protect this particular family. And there's always at the, at the intrinsic bottom kind of fallen root of him, he's this swaying back and forth wondering, can I do this? And so Ray Olin wonderfully points out to women, he says, wives, it's great for you to understand at a very, very early time in your life that the man has this in him. And as you understand this, one of the best ways that you can serve him as this man will always kind of question his ability, have self-doubt, am I able to do this? Um, wife, that you can, and I'm not saying, you know, stroke his ego and make him think he's awesome and give him a big head. That's not what I'm saying. But at the same time, there is a way that you can love and serve him where you can come alongside and encourage him by God's grace, fill in the blank of your, of your husband, by God's grace, you can do this. Speak hope and confidence in him that in God, by God's grace, I believe in you. I want to empower and encourage you. Yes, you can do this. I love you. If Women, I'm telling you, if you will do those things, that you will speak to how much you affirm him and love him and care for him and think that he is able to do that and you love him and you know that you can do it, encourage him in the Lord that he can do those things you'll be amazed at how much a man can accomplish in his lifetime, knowing that he's got a helper fit for him, beside him, encouraging him in those things. Without that, you stink at everything you do. Everything you do turns to garbage. How come you always break everything? He won't thrive. He, he'll barely accomplish things in his life. But with a woman beside him that can encourage him in those things. And I, as I said, I'm not saying build up his ego and make, make him think that he's, you know, amazing. Like next to Jesus, he's second. That's not what I'm saying at all, right? I'm saying instead, there is this swirling question of undoubt, wondering in all of our hearts, can I do this? Because I want to. I want to be a man that, that accomplishes great things. And whatever um, path the Lord has laid out for me, a woman beside him, encouraging him that he can, he will, he will certainly be able to do far more than he ever can conceive of. The next thing I want you to see is um, the creation that God gave us. So if you go into verse 16, it says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. So there's this creation that he's given to man. He's put him in the garden, and as he's put him in the garden, he's commanding him to literally take part of this creation. So here's the second thing. Man, and you have the parenthetical and woman, because obviously it pertains to them as well. Man and woman. <coughs> um, man is made to enjoy God's creation. 
to take part in it. He puts them in there. And as he puts them in there, he says, you are surely, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. There's this, there's this all of creation here that he's given and says, take part of it. It's all here for you. Enjoy it. Now, you'll even notice that um, the next verse, he gives the prohibition. He tells him what he's not allowed to do. He says in verse 17, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. And notice, there's something very interesting. The, the emphasis is on that word surely. If you look in the Hebrew, that word surely has a lot of emphasis. And you'll notice that the emphasis of this text of sixteen seventeen is not put in the prohibition. God is not some cosmic killjoy trying to take all your fun away. He's put him in the, in the, in the creation. And he's saying, you shall surely enjoy all this, putting lots of emphasis on all the freedoms that he has to enjoy everything. And then in the prohibition, no emphasis, but of the tree of knowledge and evil, you shall not eat. I mean, this is just highlighting, even in the language, how much the Lord loves to, to let us take part of the freedoms that he gives us. And then you'll notice the surely and the consequence. There is an emphasis again in the consequence if you disobey. Right there, the end of 17. For in the day that you eat of this tree of it, you shall surely die. So there is great emphasis in helping him see. If you disobey, you will receive both physical and spiritual death. If Adam had not eaten, physically he would have lived forever. But in the moment that they sin, and that's next week, so I'm not going to steal Jack's thunder as he preaches Jack's th- uh, Genesis 3. Um, both physical and spiritual death occur. So the second thing is, the first thing, as I said, man, we're created to work. We should, we should work hard. We should get up every day going after it with a wife that, that encourages us and, and, and pushes us and tells us, yes, you can do it. We believe in you by God's grace. I know that you can. Second thing that we should encourage uh, we should enjoy God's creation. All the things that he's given us. Um, the, don't do the things he, he, he says not to, but the things he says, enjoy it. I mean, this is here for us. All right, now let's get into some of the marriage aspects in verse 18. It says in verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So God looks down and he sees Adam and he sees him alone and automatically notices it is not good for man to be by themselves. They, they need, you know, some adult supervision. They, they are quite a mess. Um, without our wives, you know, we will, we, our shoes won't be tied. We'll be starving all the time. We'll be eating cereal for three weeks in a row. Um, I, and I'm not saying this, I'm kind of saying it in jest. I'm not trying to patronize you wives. Like, all you're good for is just to take care of us because we're just big babies and keep us alive. That's not what I'm saying. Um, I, I, what I am saying is God's saying... It's not good for man to be alone. Man needs a wife. It's, it's bad. It's literally bad for man to be alone. Now, um, before we get into too far, my, my seminary professor, Dr. Lederbach, uh, said one thing, and I want to I pass this along. I think it's really good. Um, he tries to make a distinction here between alone and lonely, and I think it's pretty helpful to think about. Um, if you read ch- children's books, uh, I've been over the last 10 years, reading children's books nonstop, um, especially you try to buy the ones about God, etc. And so as you read it, especially after I went to seminary, I always see this and I, you know, I've gotten better. You don't have to be vehement like I was at the very beginning. Now I'm just kind of passively like, that's not right. Let me explain why. But um, you'll read in, in the children's books where, you know, they have all the animals and they'll show little sad Adam sitting here by himself. He's 
not got any clothes on. He's got, you know, tree branches covering it um, in the way because he's not wearing loincloths or anything yet. He's just sitting there all sad. And it says, and poor Adam, he's so lonely by himself. And my seminary professor is quite quick to point out saying, he's not lonely. There's a difference between lonely and alone. And we need to realize Adam doesn't even know he's alone. Only God knows that he's alone. It's not to the end of verse 20 that Adam even realizes he's alone when the parade of animals goes by. That's the whole point of the big parade of animals. It's not just for Adam to do the scientific work of naming the animals, but to see them go and say, wait a second, they're all pairing off. I don't have someone. I'm alone. Like, but in verse 18, God sees that man's alone. And if God had not paraded the animals, Adam is not lonely. He's got God. He has God. He's in perfect relationship, non-sinful, absolute, in the Garden of Eden, wonderful relationship with God. He's not lonely. So the children book, when he's just, ignore that. Like God's with him. It's an amazing relationship. He's got God. But he is alone. He is alone. And his being alone is not good. Adam doesn't even notice a problem. At, the, at verse 18, the aloneness, Adam is completely unaware that he's alone. It's not till verse 20 that Adam realizes he's alone. There's a reason for that. I'll get to it. But Adam doesn't even know that this is a problem. Not until all the animals go by. Salehammer, John Salehammer, he's a theologian, commentator. He says, what is not good about man's condition is that he does not have another like himself. He does not have someone else like himself. You can see it says in verse 18, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. I'll make a helper fit for him. And so when we see this helper fit for him, God says it twice. He says it in verse 18. He also says it there at the end of verse 20. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So before we go any further, I want to stop here and just kind of talk about um, these, two, these two descriptive terms of women uh, and what I think they might mean. So there's two little things. This is not going to be up here. This is inside of point whatever three we're in. We're in point three. Two little kind of side note things about women. So there's two descriptors giving of women here. One that they're a helper and one that they're literally fit for him. So let's, let's kind of take those two one by one and, and see. The first thing is that she's described as the helper. And this term is not a lowly term like, oh, you're just the helper. The Holy Spirit is called the helper. God is called the helper. So this is not a term of, you know, kind of second class citizen servant level thing. The Holy Spirit is our helper. So we need to understand that the idea of being a helper is bringing someone who is strong to the scene. If you're going to move, you say, I need someone to help me move. I know. I want the wimpiest, weakest people to carry my big, heavy couch. No, no. When we want someone to help us with any task, we don't want someone that's incompetent and weak and that has no idea what they're doing, right? We want someone who knows what they're doing, that's strong, that's, that's going to do it. So when we see a helper is coming, we're, this, this term is connoting strength and exaltation and someone that is desperately needed, desperately needed. So as we're seeing this, we already understand that the context of being a helper is not a, a second-class servant citizen, um, but, but instead... This man, Adam here, um, is alone and needs someone to come and help him. Now, there's lots of things that we can talk about in the pragmatic sense of how helper, uh, the wife is the helper of the husband. And I've kind of made fun of it here a little bit. We're a mess. We'll eat cereal for three weeks, etc. Um, that's true. Uh, 
in a lot of levels. But we also know men that know how to clothe themselves and tie their own shoes and eat fine, right? So theologically, when we're talking about helper, although I do ab- absolutely advocate that the wife is the helper in all those senses, I, I would, I'm a mess without my wife, just, just an absolute mess. Um, but I think theologically, at its deepest level, if we're going to say, what is the, the deepest theological understanding we can have of the word helper for the woman? What is, at, at its most base, like, bottom dollar thing, what is it that he absolutely cannot do without her? And is it in the text? Is it in the text? And it is. It's in the text, and we see it back in Genesis chapter 1, where the blessing and the first command is given. In verse 128, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Guys, it's impossible for us to do that without a woman. We, we will never be able to do that. And so while the term helper certainly is absolutely true that she helps us, and my wife helps us, and helps us in every single way, um, Sailhammer says, and Augustine, and really almost every single theologian over the last 2,000 years, commentators write, that the help that's envisioned in this particular text is tied to the bearing of children. That's the, that is at the bottom dollar theological, most obvious place we can see in the text of what the term helper means here and to the woman is that she is going to come alongside as, as the animals are going off in their pairs and they're going to have more animals and here he is by himself. That's not good if he's going to fulfill Genesis 128. He can't just be here. He has to have a helper. And so here we're going to see that he gets that helper to fulfill Genesis 128. Even more uh, evidence or support that the, the greatest theological understanding of helper is that it's tied to her being childbearing. In Genesis 3 in the fall, the only two things that God talks about to her are the pain that she's going to have in childbirth and the capital O offspring that's going to come from her. That's Jesus. And they're both about, they both are tied to the idea of her bearing children. So we know that the, the, the best theological understanding we can have of the woman being the helper is um, tied to her having children. Now, I'm not going to open all that up. I already did that three weeks ago. I don't think that means that every wife is therefore commanded to have as many children as possible, etc. You can go download that sermon uh, whenever it was, three weeks ago, and I talked about how many, uh, I think, uh, children a family should have. Well, I'll just say it because I don't think that podcast worked, is that um, we should not be, um, as husbands and wives, against children. We should be open and honest to the idea of children and whatever the Lord would lay on our heart that we pray through, we should have. If we have a heart that says, I don't ever want children because I have a lifestyle I want to live, that's the wrong heart. The idea is whatever the Lord lays on your heart as children you should have, we should have them. And the greatest evidence I think of that is it's only the last hundred years in Christendom or in all human history that humans have ever even had the option of not having children in marriage. You think about that? Like 9,900 years at least of human history, or maybe 14,900 years of human history. It's never even entered our minds that we couldn't have children when we got married because there's been no way to stop it. So anyway, I'm not advocating. You would think, oh, Fuzz advocating for as many as he has because it seems like that's all they do is children every two years. But like, that's not, that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying theologically, the helper that's being offered here is helping him in fulfilling Genesis 128. Now, because helper and all the kinds of things as, as it's been taught 
talked about through human history, it always seems to like, because men are physically stronger than women and they're given the job of protecting and she's the helper. It's sometimes misunderstood and women, I think, are misunderstood in what it means for, for them to be a woman. And some chauvinist kind of mindsets of Christians think that she's just the lowly helper and the servant and I run the deal. And so I love, I just love that right after helper fit for him twice, the term fit for him is put there because fit for him for anybody that has that kind of mindset, balances the scales right back out so that man doesn't have the wrong idea of who she is. So this fit for him literally is corresponding to him at his, at his level. Remember, we're going to see it in just a minute. All the animals went by, and from Adam's perspective as they go, as two elephants go and two zebras go and two turtles go, they look exactly alike to him. They are equal in all accounts. There they go. And I don't have anybody, so I need someone that's fit for me, literally, corresponding to and absolutely equal to me in dignity and value and worth. And so as we see this helper fit for him, we are seeing that this is someone that, that reminds man that she is not his servant, but instead she is at his level. She, has, she is his equal. She is corresponding to him. She is fit for him. Now, verse 18, as I said, Adam has no idea that he's alone. He has no idea and God's going to give him this awesome scientific work. Adam, the very first scientist, gets to work in verse 19. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see, to literally to see. This, who knows how long this would take? What he would call them. I wonder what God, God I want you, or Adam, I want you to call him something. What are you going to call him? And whatever uh, the man called every living creature, that was its name. It's literally its name. So this means... It's, it's bringing in the idea of intentionality. It's not just random labels like we give stuff, but literally names. He's looking at them, and as he's looking at them, he's thinking about how, they, what do they do? All right, hippopotamus, what do you do? You do this, all right? And he thinks about what they're doing and gives them names, literal classifications that make sense in order, and he gives them all names, and the Lord God lets him do that. By the way, that connotes that at the very beginning, there was language. There was language. What a gift language is, Right? The very beginning, language was there, which means culture was there. At the very beginning, it was there. They weren't like, uh, uh, you know, cavemen or whatever. They're actually talking, and Adam knows words to call, and he apparently knows a whole lot of words because he names every animal. Names every animal. Pretty interesting. I mean, what an amazing grace of God that he does that. And so um, the author is naming all these animals. He's naming all these animals. And then at the very end, it says, uh, verse 20, Then the man gave names to all the livestock and to all the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. And verse 20b is that, that point right there. As they're going and they're pairing off, but for Adam, there was not found, here it is again, a helper fit for him. He's noticing as they're going, he's thinking to himself, God wants him to have this great existential understanding of there's a problem here. So finally, Adam comes to the realization that there's, there's a problem. That's not good, that I'm by myself. He had no idea until God said, all right, I'm going to run all the animals in front of you because I know something that you don't know, that you're alone. And I want you to experience this. I want you to have the existential understanding that you're alone now. And so now Adam gets to the place where he realizes he's alone. Uh, A commentator, Waltke, I love this. He says, God waits until Adam is prepared. He doesn't tell him he's alone. He lets all the animals run in front of him and then he realizes he's alone. And he says, God waits until Adam is prepared to realize he's alone to appreciate the gift of woman. So we're, we're, we're expecting at verse 18 
Then the Lord God said that the man's not alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. We're expecting. And then he made a helper fit for him. That's what we're expecting, right? And if he had done that, more than likely, we don't know. This is all speculation. When it's just given to us and we don't have this like existential understanding that we need it, take it for granted. But instead, parades all the animals in front of him, parades all the animals in front of him. And then Adam gets to the place, oh, something's not right. And then when the gift is given to him of the woman, much deeper level of appreciation for it. I really did need this. I really did need this. And so he gives him a suitable partner. Um, and so as they're going off, <clears throat> Adam's going to appreciate and understand that the greatest gift that he can ever get from God outside of Jesus is not, sorry, Garth, it's not unanswered prayers. It's a wife. It's a wife. The greatest gift that we can get outside of Jesus is a wife. So here it is in the text, verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he was slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up at the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to him. So the fourth thing is this, and this is just right in the text. Um, Put it in all caps to give it more emphasis. Man needs a wife, exclamation mark. Man needs a wife. We need a helper fit for us. And most of the population of the earth is going to experience this. Um, Being single is a gift. We know that from 1 Corinthians 7. I'm not discounting that, and I absolutely believe that. But the majority of us will get married and have children. So the majority of us, absolutely, and I say majority, I mean like 90, 95% is, is the case. It seems to be statistically that we need a wife, that we absolutely need a wife. So God comes, and it says in verse 21, the Lord God calls to deep sleep. Hey, Adam, um, I know that you feel kind of bummed here. You got to the place where you realized that you're alone. What I want you to do, I want you to go to sleep. Little, little heavenly anesthesia right there. Whew, it's probably awesome, you know. You're gone. Knocked you right out. Like, count backwards from 20, tw- gone. Like, you couldn't even get 20 out. He's gone. And then <clears throat> it says the Lord had caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs. Uh, Matthew Henry, pretty famous quote. I think it's awesome. Uh, as he talks about the idea of coming from a rib, he says, the woman is not made out of Adam's head to top him, nor out of his feet to be trampled on upon him, but instead taken out of his side to be equal with him, um, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be beloved by him. It's just beautiful that he takes right out of the rib to show all those things. that She's equal and she's going to be protected by him and that he deeply loves her. He deeply loves her. And it says in, he, in verse 21, uh, he took one of the ribs and closed it up the place with flesh and from the rib that the Lord God had taken, he made, that's literally built. It's not the same as create. Um, it's built. He took what was there and formed into this. He built a woman. Don't think like robotic. Think like awesome human. Built a woman for her. And literally, as it says, brought her to the man. Brought her to the man. This is... Um, where we get the idea of the husband bringing down the bride to the husband, that God literally brought her to him to be an equal. The story seems to make us think that as God gave Adam, God gave Adam this heavenly anesthesia and he went to sleep, he kind of he built her, and then he's like, Eve, I just want you to hang out over here for a second. Um, I'm going to go wake him up, and I'm going to bring you to him. So he goes over to Adam, and he's like, 
Hey, Adam. Buddy, wake up. You know, there he is. He's wake up. Hey, um, I got one more creature I want you to name. Yeah, I know you thought you were done at zebra, but there's one more um, because it's in a Z. So we got one more. uh, (laughs) We got one more that we want you to name. This one, I really think you're going to like. I think you're going to really like this one. You can name her. You can name her. It's going to be awesome. Just one more. He's like, all right. Uh, He's already feeling kind of bummed, and then bang. He brings her out, and he brought her literally to the man. Literally brought her to him. So you can see, as we've, the narrative has brought us, Moses has wanted us to bring this to the point. We feel the weight of God seeing him alone. He realizes all these animals have matches, and then he does it. And now he's there, and he takes him, and he literally brings him. This is in the last cre- created part of the whole thing. Brings the woman to the man. I, I get the opportunity to do a lot of weddings. Um, it's a great gift as a, as a pastor to get to do weddings, to stand up there. And um, as I stand up at the front, I'm right by the groom. And as I see that, um, don't tell the brides this, but I do something that most people don't do. I, I don't look at them first when they come down. Uh, but anyway, because there's a reason. I have a good reason. While everybody stands up and turns and looks at the bride, I always just look right at the groom's face. You should do this. It's amazing. Like the moment. The first moment, you know, that the, the doors are opened up if they're in a building or if they're outside, you know, they, they move the tree branches or whatever. And here, come the, here comes the wife. If you look, watch him first. You, you can watch her second. Um, you're not supposed to, but just watch. Like the moment it happens, whenever the groom first sees his wife coming down, being brought to him, in almost every single case, there's this raw, like, God-given emotion. It's beautiful, like, way right down down. They can't believe what they're seeing, and they almost always start crying. And it's just, it's always unexpected. They'll kind of come forward, and I'll look at him, and he's crying, and she's getting crying because she's crying. He's like, I didn't even think I was going to cry. I can't believe, I, I don't know what's going on. Like, as far as, it's, it's almost always happens. You can feel and see this, this raw, beautiful, emotional experience for the guy. And I think this is exactly how Adam feels. He's laying there. I got one more. I got one more. And he literally comes and brings Eve out to him. And you can just imagine the flood of emotion that, that comes over him. And it actually comes out to us in poem. It comes out. We get to see the words that he's feeling in his head where he says this, At last! Like the emotion. It's bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I'm going to name her. She shall be called woman, ish, shah, because she was taken out of man, ish. She is made out of me. That's her. At last, I knew that I was alone and now I'm not. It's interesting. This is the very first recorded words of humans. He named animals, not recorded. The very first time in the Bible that man speaks and it's recorded is a husband emoting in poetry about how much he loves this great gift that God just gave him. I think that's pretty awesome. I think that's pretty incredible. The very first words that we actually see that man speaks is a man talking about how much he loves the wife that it was just given to him. And it's very emotional language. You, you see this, and this is why you love it. Like, non-Christians and Christians... The biggest topic or category that we all over and over listen to when it comes to songs, poetry, to music, is about romance in music. It's about man and woman and how we feel at that particular moment about the opposite person. It's because intrinsically, deep down, all the way back from the very beginning, the reason why we buy it, the reason why we sing it, is so deeply a part of us to emote and love poetry about how we feel about that particular person and sing it out. She's awesome, or whatever. I can't sing, so you get the idea. 
And that's what's going on here. It's, it's built into us intrinsically. Now, here she comes to the man being brought. And this is where Ray Ortland points out that second question. We talked about the deep question that swirls around in the fallen man of every heart. Am I, am I going to be able to actually do what God wants? And here it is. We've, we've come to the question that kind of swirls around, among others, sure, questions. But one of the deepest questions that a woman is asking and the, the depth of her heart and soul swirling around until she, she goes the entire time is this. Whenever she's brought to the man, she's always wondering, am I what you wanted? Do I make you happy? Do, do you like me, what God has given to you? Am I what you wanted? And husband, you will do well for all of your days to spend all of your days affirming you are awesome. I cherish you. I value you. You are precious to me. I do not receive you in a casual manner. I love you. I prize you. You are exactly what I wanted. Yes, you're what I wanted. Speak and act and feel towards her every opportunity you get. If you don't do that, you'll see a beat down woman at the end of her life. But if you do, you will see a woman that will thrive as a wife, as a mother, as a businesswoman, as, as whatever God's created her to be in whatever endeavor she goes after. You love her and cherish her and prize her and don't receive her casually. But yes, you're what I wanted. You will see a woman thrive for the rest of her life. I, that's the kind of wife I want, and that's the job for me then. I want a wife that at the end just, whew, what a life. I really feel like I thrived at this life. You were a gift, Fud. I don't want at the end for her to say it was too hard and it stunk and I stayed with you because of the covenant, but that's it. I don't want that. And so we as husbands have a great task, I think, in front of us as well as them to love and affirm her. And as she has been brought to us, whether it was one year ago, 15 years ago, or 40 years ago, to be on the task of affirming her all the time, saying, yes, you are exactly what I wanted. And I will speak, act, and feel towards you to that endeavor to the rest of my life because at death, we're no longer married. This is our chance. This is our shot. We only get one to be married to this woman and to this man and to do that. And so... Here, as we get to the end of 23, this at last is bones of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Moses is wanting to kind of, because you see the therefore next, he's kind of pressing the pause button and he's wanting to make sure, okay, you got everything so far? Genesis 1 all the way up to 2, there's something that you need to know. Just to remind you, we, we've had creation. We've had all the six days of creation. We're diving in, and we know that all the creative things happened at the, day of, at the end of day six. We talked about man. Then we talked about how a woman was created, and then God brought her. And we're here at the pinnacle. We're here at the last words of creation. And the last thing, after everything had been created, the top, the last thing that was actually created was woman and the institution of marriage. It wasn't trees, it wasn't animals, it wasn't your job, it wasn't food, it wasn't anything. It was woman and then the institution of marriage. Most just pressing that little pause button at end of verse 23 and saying, you got all that, man. The very last thing, 
that I want you to see is, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The very last thing that's created. That means it's pretty important, right? The pinnacle of all created things is the institution of marriage. And if you're looking for one of the best, most concise definitions, biblical definitions of marriage, it's right there. One flesh. It, it's so beautiful. One flesh. That we are one. Everything about us, it, it's not just what we think. It's not just the, the physical union whenever we come together at marriage. It's not just that. It's more than that. It's we are everything together. Every thought I have, I now think in view of you. Someone asked me to go do something, I think about how we do this. It's, it's plural, first person plural, no longer first person singular. I thought first person singular. I can go to Waffle House at midnight. I can drive to Charleston. I'm going to go to the Grand Canyon. That's not how it works anymore. Now, as I'm married, we make decisions together. We have a bank account together. We raise these children. We are one flesh. It's not spread out. We have one life together. We have one marital reputation together. We have one bed together, just us. We have one life. We have everything, just us together. The best biblical definition, one flesh. Very last thing in the created order. Man and woman, I think, need each other desperately. And then in verse 25, he ends this whole idea. Um, And he says, and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Both naked and not ashamed. So here we see the definition of one marriage, that they are together as one flesh, and they were both naked and not ashamed. So the fifth thing I want you to see is this. Man loves and is known by his wife and her alone. If there's any place that we can make maybe the best argument for monogamy, We're just talking to secular humanists and uh, people that are agnostics or atheists. And we're trying to make an argument for the existence of monogamy. I think this is the best place we can go to. God created man and made a helper, not helpers, made a helper suitable and fit for him. And as we get down, we see that they both become one flesh, not multiples, just one flesh. And they both know each other. And it says they were both naked and they were not ashamed. In, In other words, The idea of nakedness certainly is going to be addressed in Genesis chapter 3. I don't want to talk about that too much because Jack's going to talk it. But the idea that we can see here is there was not a problem in their mind whatsoever that they were both standing there naked in front of each other. Man, think twice of it. There was no problem at all. It wasn't even a category in their mind that it should be a problem. But also we can look at it, we can see if that's the case, that means naked. Like I to Christy, and she is to me, or you are to your spouse, completely, completely known. I am willing, and I am going to make myself 100% vulnerable in front of you, and you're going to know me, and everything about me, and only me, and vice versa. And I'm going to love you despite those things I see and know about you. Not just physical, but everything about them. Every part of your makeup and And who you are, the quirks you have, the sinful patterns you might have, I'm going to forgive. I am choosing to be one flesh with you forever. I'm going to be vulnerable to the point of you knowing everything about me and vice versa. Completely and beautifully vulnerable. 
So I'm going to love you and you only, and you're going to love me and you, me only. I'm going to know you and you only. You're going to know me and me only, and that's it until we die. So man is to love and know his wife and her alone. So as we get into um, the close here, it's just a couple kind of conclusions I want to draw out. The first one is a, a very temporal kind of uh, maybe challenge, and then we'll get into some spiritual, you know, eternal. But the first one is this. Um, wives, statistically, you live longer than us, right? So one day when you're 85 or 90 or whatever, and you're sitting on your front porch drinking lemonade or tea or whatever it is you love, coffee, um, you're rocking on your rocking chair and you're looking out at whatever your husband built for you. <laughs> we want you to think about that. I want my wife to think this. Like she kind of thinks about her life and how God's blessed her and that I was her husband. I want her to say, what a great run. What a great run I had. What a blessing that I had, Bud, that I had John Chambers. We served together. We raised children together. We ministered together. Let me stop and say, that ministering together doesn't, I'm just saying that because I'm a pastor. Everybody that's a Christian is a minister, so your wife would say that too. Everyone I'm should say we ministered together, if you're a Christian. We ministered together. We, we made decisions together. We built things together. We worked together. What a guy. I love that God gave me him. That's what I want. Wives, like that, that's what I'm, I'm assuming you would want at the end of your life. And husbands, that means in a very temporal challenge for this short life we have, pursue that day with everything you can. Do everything you can for that day to happen in your wife's life. Uh, leave it up to the Lord, the results on how, who passes first. The second thing is this, and this is a, a, maybe a more kind of deeper gospel conclusion that has um, not so temporary in its nature, but eternally. I began with Genesis, I'm sorry, with Revelation 19, because I believe that that gives us the basis for why God created marriage. And so what I want to do, there's really two big main texts in the Bible about marriage. Genesis 2, Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 is written to husbands and wife. I want to take Ephesians 5 and read it to you in the, in the bigger picture that I think how we should read it. Christ in the church. So every Christian hear this. I'm going to read the direction given to husbands in Ephesians 5, but I'm going to put Christ as the husband to the church. And I want you to listen to the charges that God gives to husbands to do for their wives but the charges that Christ has done for us if we're believers. This is what Christ has done for you, every single believer. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her because he wanted to sanctify her. He wanted to cleanse her by the washing of the water of the word. Every Christian, Christ willingly gave his life up for you because he wants you to be sanctified, set apart, and literally cleansed or washed from every sin you have done or will do for your entire life completely cleansed and washed away with the water of the word. John 1, 1, Jesus is the word. The word became flesh, John 1, 14. Jesus has washed away your sin completely. He has set you apart and he has literally called you his own. To what end? Like, why did he do that then? Continues in Ephesians 5 because it says, so that. The reason why he did it is because he literally wants to present to himself, exactly like when God went and got Eve and presented Eve to Adam, Jesus wants to present to himself a church, a people of his own. And it says this, 
to present to himself the church to himself, which is now going to be given such amazing titles, in splendor, without spot, without wrinkle, or any such thing, that she would be holy and without blemish. The gospel that, that says that we are the church, that we are Christ's bride, literally says this of you, every Christian, that you are now in Christ, holy, without blemish, without spot, without wrinkle. You are in splendor. Jesus is jealous for a perfect wife, and he got her. Because he literally died to make her perfect. That's pretty amazing. Pause for a second and let that sink in because he's literally talking about you if you're a believer. Jesus wanted you perfect and he made you perfect because he died to make you perfect. So as we kind of put it back in that spousal roles, Wives, maybe you're struggling to be the perfect wife. It's understandable. Like, you, you want to be. I want to be the perfect mom, the perfect wife. I want to do it. I want to. It's so hard. I just find it seems like daily I think I fail more than succeed. Apply the gospel to that struggle. Jesus has died and forgiven you of all your failures as a wife. And Jesus has died so that you can be, by his grace, struggling forward, ever increasing, a more perfect wife for your husband. I'm not saying you'll reach perfection in this life. But by his grace, you can pursue in Christ that. I think that's super encouraging for you. Husbands, same thing. Struggling. Perhaps you're struggling to be the perfect husband. You had such great intentions when it started out. Everything was going smooth that first four days. Right? And then like, oh man, this is so hard. You need to hear this, husbands. Jesus has died for you and forgiven you of all your failures already. And because of that, by his grace, you can daily pursue with ever-increasing closeness to that perfect husband. You will not reach it, but you will grow if you pursue it by the Spirit, by grace. I need to hear that. What, what great news the gospel is for us. It's so generous that God would give us texts like this to be able to understand the greater picture of the very last thing he creates is a wife for a man and then brings her to him and marries them in the garden, performs the very first wedding ceremony. And the last thing that's created is an institution, marriage. And now we have a great understanding of the gospel and what the marriage supper of the Lamb is in Revelation 19. So as we turn now and go into a time of um, challenge, as we go into a time of response, we've got three or four songs here. Um, I just encourage you, maybe, you thought of a couple things. As, don't, don't crush yourself and write a 20-thing list. You're not going to be able to do 20 things right now. Think of one. Think of two that the Spirit is pressing in on you as a husband and wife that says, I need to get better at this one thing, this, this sec, these two things. 
by God's grace, I'm going to pursue this. I'm going to go home, and I'm going to tell the kids to go outside in the backyard. Y'all go play. I need to talk with her for a little bit, or I need to talk with him for a little bit. I need to, I need to repent. I need to confess these things I haven't done well. I need to receive forgiveness and not, like, after I say these things, kind of give that little pause and say, <clears throat> don't you have something? Don't do that. Like, let the Lord work on them, and they'll come in their own time. And maybe you just need some time to talk later on this afternoon with some of the things you need to improve as, as a husband or wife. Write a couple of things down. You've got time here to think through those things. Think, pray, respond. Maybe you just need to dive deeper into that great news of the gospel that Jesus has died for us, as it says in Ephesians 5. And you're struggling with ongoing sin and can't imagine climbing out of that hole, only to realize that everything has been forgiven and you can have victory over that in Christ. Maybe that's what you need to hear today. Maybe you're not a Christian. All this talk about living forever in heaven and being forgiven of our sin is new to you. I'd love to have the chance to talk to you about what that means. I'll be right back there during this time of songs. Come and talk to me. I'll talk to you about what it means to follow Christ, to be forgiven. We don't follow Christ because it's a way. We follow Christ because it's the only way. There is no way to God except through Christ. John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4, 12, no name given to men uh, that we can find salvation except for Christ. So if you're an unbeliever and you have never heard this and you want to talk, I'll be right back there. I'm going to pray, and then Jordan will lead us in a time of worship. However the Holy Spirit's leading, I ask that you would be obedient. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. I pray for my friends and my own self, my heart. Lord, that you would be with us now, that you would move in our hearts and show us places that we um, need to grow as husbands and wives, as Christians. We know that some of us have the gift of singleness um, right now, maybe, and that we would have peace and rest in that, and that um, in your own timing, that would work itself out, Lord. I pray for each person here uh, that they would think on the gospel, how it's couched in this beautiful illustration of marriage. And that we are called the bride of Christ. And what a wonderful day it will be to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. With my voice getting to be as loud as the thunders. Screaming hallelujah to the Savior. Along with multitudes. May it be right now. As we sing and worship. A picture of that great day. I pray this in Jesus name. Amen.